Welcome to Classical Etc., a show that dives into the philosophy, culture, and heart of classical education. You're in the studio with Shane Saxon. All right, welcome to the second episode of Classical Etc. Season 2. I'm sitting with my three friends again, Paul, Tanya, and Martin. And we're talking about core ideas to Memorial Press's vision for education. And today's the topic is traditional. I just want to get this out of the way right now and say that the fact that one of our core tenets is traditional makes me feel like an old fuddy-dud. I don't need one of you guys to talk me out of this. So, Paul, well, talk I, me out of it. I would say you're you're young, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I think the the traditional aspect uh, really is just in contrast to what we've become, right? It's not you're 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 a fuddy dud because it's what used to be done, and we've gone away from it. Not because it's by nature fuddy duddy. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so I think traditional uh, goes back to sort of uh, the need we see in human nature of formation. Mm. And without formation, we go astray, right? And so as children, we need to be formed in things, which means the, the, the way our classrooms look or the way it looks when we, when we homeschool or, or any of that, it's, it's bringing this, this fundamental premise into play of we have to be trained in good habits, mm. which means we need an orderly classroom. We need a quiet classroom. We need um, one in which it's not distracting. Those sorts of things come into play. Yeah. So one of you guys, give me a, a succinct definition of what is traditional. When we talk about a traditional education, what what is that? Like, what does it look like? Sure. <laughs> it looks like um, desks in, a, in rows facing the teacher, the teacher up front teaching all day, the teacher being the center of everything, the students raising their hands to speak. Order, total order, discipline structure that is reassuring. Uh, it sounds like I'm um, recommending that we're not having any fun, which is another topic. But but it really, when you had that structure to a classroom, you get so much more done and everybody is comfortable. I've, it's interesting, you know, because we travel around to different schools all the time and there are there are, you know, we've seen it all. Mm -hmm. And the classrooms with the structure and the order, the students are happier than in the ones where it's chaotic, especially the students that need structure. And they're sitting in the, you can see the lost souls in a chaotic classroom who are sitting there uncomfortable, you know, things being thrown across the room, um, <clears throat> desks and nests so that they are facing each other rather than facing the teacher. So the focus is not on the classroom. The focus is on each other. And it's, it's a huge difference. It would be nice if you could just see both, Shane. Oh, okay. can, can I make a clarification yeah. just to help you, Tanya, because you said it sounds like you're, you're not being a fuddy-duddy. Um, Shane said fuddy-duddy. Yes. I said fun. Okay. All right. But you you made the point about the teacher being at the front of the room. Yes. And um, while, yes, we by, for us, that signals the teacher's in control of the classroom. But I think if you were to walk through a classroom at Highlands Latin, you would see 
that the teacher's walking around the classroom all the time. It's not That's like right. it's it's not this this sort of picture we all paint in our heads of these kids sitting in rows, the teacher not moving, just up there reading from a from a page. It it is a very engaged and lively classroom, but it is one that is orderly and and driven. Yes, by the teacher. and that is a good. That is a very good point to make because I've also been in classrooms where the teacher is in the front of the classroom, but she's sitting behind a PowerPoint computer or a document reader and not engaging with the students at all, really. She's engaged with her computer. And so the students are engaged with the screen. And I'm not anti-technology. I think the Promethean board is a wonderful thing. At first, when I saw one, I just thought, oh, Lord, I'll never be able to use this. But it, I, it's wonderful because it'll save. You put a Latin declension on the board and it's still there tomorrow because you can just flip to another page and then bring it back and you don't have to rewrite everything. But if it means that the teacher is sitting behind a document reader instead of up face to face with the students, then it is a problem. So you're right that I, you, we definitely needed to make that um, distinction. So Martin, what they've both described is disciplined and orderly, but in the, in the word is tradition. What if our tradition was chaotic? You know, so what, what, what's the connection between the discipline and orderliness that they are describing and this idea of traditional that we describe it as traditional? Well, I think, you know, traditional is a very equivocal word. I mean, you can mean it in the sense that we're passing on a cultural tradition, which is what classical education is doing, or you can talk about it pedagogically. You know, what does a traditional classroom look like, which is what, what Tanya was talking about. Cheryl Lowe used to say that, you know, our, our school Highlands was, um, was Christian, classical, and traditional. She made those, those three uh, distinctions. And, and what she was meaning in that formulation was this sort of pedagogical aspect of things. I mean, I have friends in the classical education movement and they'll, 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 they'll do things like talk about this, this education of rest. I, I hear this all the time, education of rest. And they talk about structure and order as if that's somehow anxiety producing mm. when it's exactly the opposite. Uh, Wendell Berry once said, rest requires order. You know, my wife, before she goes to bed, she's got to have all the dishes washed and everything in place. <laughs> Otherwise, she can't go to sleep. I mean, and, and you know, a lot of us are like that. We, we can't really rest in chaos. Uh, that's what's anxiety producing. Yeah. And particularly for children, as Tanya mentioned. I mean, uh, 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 children appreciate, although they can't articulate it, they appreciate this regularity, this order, um, that they know what's coming up next. It provides them a level of, of comfort and, and, a, and a better environment for concentration. So, I mean, I walk in, I walk in some classrooms in, school, in a school and – and uh, the first thing I'll notice, you know, if, if, if the classroom is this way, is the arrangement of the desks, as Tanya mentioned. I mean, this is, this is the rock bottom basic thing. All right. And, and I was in one classroom and I'm sitting in the back and you have these desks and they're, 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 they're set up as in pairs and they're facing each other and they're facing and they're not facing the teacher. And the teacher spends half her time trying to get them to stop talking. And I'm in the back thinking, well, no wonder they're talking. You've got them facing each other. You, 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 by the, by the sheer setup of the classroom, you're encouraging them talking while you're teaching. So what, what, what do you expect? And it, and it amazes me sometimes that they just don't seem to get that. I mean, that's just a common sense thing. Uh, and so, so just having that structural order in the classroom, having an orderly lesson, 
um, presenting materials in a certain sequence. That's 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 a that's what I, I would call all that under traditional sure. in terms of sure. pedagogy. Yeah. And so when we use that word traditional, though, are we specifically talking about a particular like? tradition that we're trying to bring into our classroom or are we talking about a habit of mind that that prefers the old or something like that give me more precision on that term traditional dichotomies dichotomies i say both and okay um i you know you, you we are i think passing on um a tradition this is what if you go back to your grandparents this is the way that their classrooms were right um in in why? Because it was recognized that children need structure. They need order, right? So this is what you see. If you go back to the old math books, I like. I mean, I, at one point I was looking for, um, I think we were working on our Spanish curriculum back in the day that we've never done. Um, <laughs> I hate that you brought that up. Um, <laughs> uh, I should have thought twice about that. Uh, yes. Um, but I remember we were working on a numbers lesson. Um, this is before Cheryl yanked it from me because I was too slow, I think. And, uh, and I went looking for Spanish, old Spanish manuals because it was all you could get for free online uh, of, of mathematics. And the, just the order that the, the concepts are written in was, was just astounding. Right. It's something you don't you don't see in that way because it was so clear cut. That's why I love the form series is because it's just in bullet points. It's super clear. Um, and so, you know, insofar as the way the, the classrooms looked, but as far as the way the 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 content was produced, all of that, I think, is a tradition, sort of a, a mentality we're passing on. But it's also what was the other option you gave me? The, the, the habit of mind. Yeah, I think I think that sort of that tradition is helping us form that habit of mind. Um, and so we're kind of going for both of those things at the same time. Based on the example that we saw from years ago, it is based on your, but if you think about years ago in that one room schoolhouse, there were all sorts of grades the teacher was in charge of. And so if you didn't have order, nobody was going to learn. And so I do think that was part of it. Yeah. And, and the, the funny thing is, uh, every time there's these progressive reforms, uh, they'll, they'll bring up the old one room classroom as if it's an example of what they want when it's exactly the opposite uh, of what they want. Um, you, you know, uh, back in the nineties uh, when they were reforming education here in, in Kentucky, it was like they had a priority of for chaos and, um, <laughs> and so they had the non-graded primary classrooms where you were mixing in hetero, hetero, heterogeneously is the word different ages and ability levels on the, and this was supposed to be good somehow and they were going to explain exactly how um but it was it was just a resurrection of the old one uh, uh open classrooms of the late 60s and early 70s in fact they were using the same book that that they used to as their authoritative source for it uh, as they were in the 60s and um and so they they just thought, well, if we put a bunch of kids in there with the different ages and ability levels, well, that's what they did in the, in the old, old <laughs> one room schoolhouse. Well, okay. The old one room schoolhouse had something they didn't have, which was a structured curriculum. Mm. They had, they had, they had the old readers and they were graded read, you know, you know McGuffey's and uh, Baldwin and Bender. And they, you know, you knew where you were in the curriculum all the time because you say, well, I'm in the middle of the third reader. That, that's how you knew where you were in the curriculum. But it was a very strict curriculum. So everyone knew where they were in that. So there was underneath all that chaos in terms of the 
the kids that were in there, they had a central structured curriculum that everybody knew and, and everybody knew where they were in it. Mm. And, 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 and the modern people who do this don't, don't do that. They don't want that part of it. Yeah. And I think it now actually would be a great time to bring up. I, it just occurred to me as you were talking, because we're talking about classrooms, right? And, and the sort of the model that's coming to my mind is this Prussian model of, you know, desks facing forwards. But you think about um, the English manners where you would have a tutor or governess come in and educate the kids. This, this same mentality of structure and order that they would have been educated with, right, because of the structure in the curriculum, the, the formality expected in the way that you carried yourself and the way that you would have done your lessons rather than just a, a free-for-all because you're not in a school. Does that make sense? Uh, and and I think that's uh, so important to bring up. can apply to even homeschoolers. Like it's, it's a part of everything we do in all the different facets. Because mm-hmm. well, that goes back to that habit of mind that yeah. we're forming. Well, and just knowing that the, what is our purpose? It's to educate. And there's so much, you know, you get as a teacher toward the end of the class year and you think, I have so much left to tell these children and no time. And, and so you, you feel constantly as a teacher that responsibility and need to impart as much knowledge as Mm -hmm. possible. And you can't do that if you're not in a structured classroom. Yeah. You bring up purpose there. And I've heard Martin talk a little bit about kind of differentiating between the goals of a traditional classroom and the goals of non-traditional classrooms. Mark, could you kind of spell that out a little bit more? What are the kinds of goals that non-traditional classrooms that you've seen that you think are maybe not appropriate? I think it's child-centered. Oh, you didn't ask me. Sorry. <laughs> child-centered versus. Yeah, well, you know, uh, and you see a lot but of these. But you go ahead. Oh, okay. I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll clarify uh, your, your point. Um, there, there's, there's all these, um, Edie Hirsch in, in uh, one of his articles, he, he, he shows these dichotomies that, that these charts that, that they present to teachers as these dichotomies between traditional and uh progressive, modern progressive education. And, um, some of them are just, they, they're made so extreme and they make the, 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 the traditional look bad and the progressive look good. But, you know, one of them that I think is right on target is this child, you know, progressive education being child centered. That is the goal. It's psychological. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to go to, we're going to go to teacher's college and we're going to take mostly psychology courses for however long we're there. And this is going to enable us uh, to do in the classroom what a, uh, a, 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 a person with a PhD in psychology can't, has a hard time doing one-on-one in, in therapy. Okay. Uh, but they're going to learn it by going to weekend professional development seminars. Um, and so, but, but whereas traditional is, is subject centered, mm. it is content centered. And the progressives put that is on the wrong column. You know, you're not supposed to be content centered. You're supposed to be child centered. And of course, one of the great um, uh, quotes on education, I think, is um, that um, we're not here to develop children. We're here to form adults. And that Im- that implies that there's some criteria that you have, some standard that you want to try to bring the children to rather than bringing the standard down to the children, which is what modern education really wants to do. And and since they've already agreed the child-centered portion of this, I, I thought I'd share this little um, conversation that I had years ago. And I had a friend who, she was a math teacher and she, uh, we were just talking about what her classroom looked like. And she was, she was telling me about how, you know, the kids learn from one another and this, that, and the other. And I said, 
Well, I think you and I have a very different concept of what education is. Um, and she said, how so? I said, well, I, you know, I, I kind of see it as a long chain that we're, you know, we're, we're kind of, you know, linking the next generation onto, and I'm that link. And if, and if the kids are learning from one another, right, which is what you get with the, the turning of the desk onto one another, mm-hmm. um, the, 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 the group projects where we're going to figure this out together, instead of like giving them information and teaching them what they need to know, asking them to go find it, um, you know, at, at, at a, maybe upper high school in college level, that's great because at that point they know how to research and they've, they, they know what they're looking for. They have con- contextual knowledge, but, but not when they're in, you know, elementary school or middle school. And I've, I've sat in classrooms where they're all, you know, facing each other and they've asked them to go do, you know, each group do three questions. Right. And, and maybe they come up with three answers. None of them are right. Um, because the teacher's not walking through it with them. They're trying to do it their own, you know, on, on their own. And out of that group of four, only one kid did the work. Yeah, because the teacher's supposed to be be sidelined in the modern system. They're trying to sideline the teacher use with, with, with instructional technology is one way they're doing it. That's, that's the purpose of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, as uh, uh, Larry Cuban says in his book um, on, on education technology. Um, the other thing is, you know, we, we, there's this rhetoric about, you know, children learning from each other. And I remember uh, when somebody was saying this in our own state, when they were reforming education a few years ago, they wrote this letter to the editor and they said, look, if my child is going to be responsible for teaching the other children in the classroom, then he needs retirement <laughs> benefits and health plan. <laughs> well, it does bring up one of the common objections to traditional, and I'll just throw this to the table. That is, I think we can all resonate with that experience of discovery learning. That is, I remember very clearly when, when Monty, my ninth grade uh, physical science teacher, taught me the principles of flight. And actually, he taught me all the things that led to flight or lift. And I, then I discovered lift. And I'd never forgotten that. And I think we can all uh, resonate with the idea that the things that we discover really are, it, it's very helpful. It's very enjoyable to discover things in learning. But a lot of times that is what people are saying is antithetical to a traditional classroom situation. How would you guys respond to that critique to say that a teacher leading a class leads to students never discovering anything? Well, I, I, you know, uh, this is traditional because it comes uh, from a, a thinker who said it about 2,500 years ago. That, that qualifies as traditional. Okay, it's Aristotle. Uh, the, the, the classroom is, uh, in, the, in the whole teaching experience, the teaching and learning experience, is a rhetorical situation. You are really uh, trying to persuade, mm-hmm. in, a, in a way, the student to, be, to, to, uh, to take what you're saying and take it seriously and, and to engage have some kind of engage. Yeah. And so— uh, what did Aristotle said, say persuasion was? Well, it's three things. Okay, it's ethos. It's your character as a teacher. You're drawn to something in the teacher. And that's one way that you capture them. Uh, the other is by the strength of what you say that is that is made um, more understandable by being orderly and clear. And then there's, uh, the, the first is called ethos. The second is called logos, and the final one is called pathos, which is how do you employ, how do you, how do you capture your audience's emotions and bring those into line with what you're trying to teach them? That, that's, that's pathos. You have to be, as a teacher, 
you're in a rhetorical situation and you have to do those three things well. You have to draw them to yourself. You have to convince them intellectually and you have to get to their heart in some way and pull them in. Your teacher got to your heart. Yeah. Who happened? Bonnie. Love that guy. Because what happens is John, John Dewey, he, he has his paradigm is active versus passive learning. And he says all learning basically is passive. Okay. It's, it's not, you don't, you cram it down their throat. They, 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 they apprehend and he makes it all that way. And, and that's, that's not a good way to look at the classroom situation. We're much better off looking at it classically through Aristotle's view of what persuasion is. Hmm. Well, and, and going back to this idea of discovery learning, when you, when you brought that up, what kept going through my head is somewhere in Cheryl Lowe's writings that I have that I, I think I was tasked at one point with giving a talk and she gave me some notes and I still have them somewhere. I have to go look and I'll, I'll look it up for next podcast. But I remember very clearly a statement where she says, this is the real discovery learning. And where I think that came from, uh, there's two places in my head where it could have been in the top 10 reasons to learn Latin, or it could have been um, in the four types of questions that she had. Mm. But I, I, I keep going back to the Latin because I think she brought it up there because in one of her top 10 reasons early on, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it was published this way or not, but she talked about Latin as a unit study. In that, you know, because at one point it was, those were, it was big things. Everybody wanted to do a unit study, unit study, unit study. And uh, she said, Latin brings all of that stuff together. So all of a sudden your entire curriculum is a unit study because you can, you can study the numbers in Latin and it comes up and it's your language study, but then it's coming up in science and all this other stuff. And the discoveries that kids make just when they see those connections, that's making those aha moments left, right, and center. So to go back to what we were talking about last time, Latin is central to an education because it's going to facilitate that kind of discovery learning. That's so funny that she (laughs) called it a unit study. (laughs) We're going to do it for 10 years. (laughs) It's a 10 year unit. Well, and that's what, that's what I think, she uh, she said also I think in reference to you know Latin as a uh, a unit study in your language arts program it's the central thing it's the mm-hmm. thing that pulls right. everything together yeah. and that is true and losing that has resulted in the falling apart of the language arts curriculum in this country I think and I think additionally that the tools of discovery are the tools of thinking which is the trivial. And that is what traditional education imparts to students. And what a lot of times happens in progressive education is that this so-called discovery learning is expecting students to have the tools of discovery before mm-hmm. they actually have them. And what we're trying to do is equip them with all the, the basic level of content and then the, the thinking skills that they need so that they can go out into the world and explore God's, God's earth and, and see how it works. Yeah. Cheryl would often draw an analogy to sports. You know, uh, we, we would never tolerate in on a sports team in athletics, what we do in a classroom in terms of the way we train people. Uh, you know, you go, you go out there and you are, uh, during the week, you're doing certain kinds of exercises and drills and this sort of thing, which is, you know, if you're, if, you know, with a linebacker, you're, you're doing certain things and you're learning to move your feet in a certain way in your body. Uh, and you're not going to be doing that out on the field. That's just you drill and you drill and you drill to make that natural. So you don't even think about it anymore mm-hmm. so that when you're in the game, uh, that's what you're going to do. Right. But what what modern progressive educators want to do is just throw you out there into a game without any drill or practice. And it doesn't work very well. So here's another objection that you might hear from someone who is encountering traditional education for their first time. Sometimes people will say, every child is made in the image of God, which they are. And they're beautiful and they're fragile and they need to be 
carefully raised to, to full maturity. And one of the ways that you can damage them is by cutting off their creativity, by preventing them from exploring who they ought to be. And traditional education is going to cut them off from what they would like to be in the world. And it's going to prevent them from exploring, you know, nature and those things because you've got them stuck in a classroom. Doesn't that denigrate God's image in in these children? I call that free range education. Just let them outside and let them run. Don't ever do anything with them. Uh, You know, one part of being an adult and part of being a human being is having to... um, having to come to terms with reality, okay? Um, and reality, not just physical reality and knowing things about the world that, that you're not going to ever know unless somebody tells you, okay? But but also the, the metaphysical things, uh, uh, the good, the true, and the beautiful. Uh, those are out there, but it doesn't come naturally. I mean, if, if you just, you, know, you put a child out into the jungle and let them grow up out there, it's not going to be pretty probably. And they will not be able to form themselves as fully human unless they're around other human beings because we are essentially social creatures. And we do learn from another, particularly when we're older, but we learn from people who know better than we do. This is a basic concept and nobody really denies that, but they, they talk as if they do deny it. But when you confront them with, oh no, 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 I'm not saying that. Well, yes, you are. You are. But we, I don't think you can say that the structured classroom doesn't allow for creativity either. Because I do think that as long as you're teaching and your students are engaged in the material and you're making connections from subject to subject, there's a lot of creativity. Now, we're not going to hand our students a blank piece of paper and say, write whatever you want to today. But we may be reading Robin Hood and say, so let's talk about it. Was he was it just for him to rob from people, sure. even though he was doing it, you know, for the good of other people? So what we're doing, we are letting our students be creative, but it's within the context of ordered, structured learning. Well, and I, I and love that. that just, Tanya? Should I did he, say Should just. he have stolen that money? Well... <laughs> I don't think I ever actually gave my students my opinion about that. I don't think I'm going to give you my opinion about that. Well, to save Tanya from the hot seat, I I love your point, though, about, uh, you know, basically by throwing questions at the students, we're we're giving them that opportunity to be creative. And I was just trying, I was trying to do the calculus in my mind. Do students in our classrooms talk as much as students in in non-traditional classrooms. And I started thinking, well, yeah, I mean. Just not all at the same time. That's right. (laughs) It's not all at the same time. And they're not talking to their, to their classmate about it. They're talking to the whole class in response to the teacher. And so this is not like, I I don't want to totally dispel this idea of this, this, the boring classroom where students aren't engaged. The, the students are fully engaged. The teachers are throwing questions at them all the time. It's, it's forcing them to, to think of things that they ha- would not have otherwise thought, which, which almost breaks the bounds of creativity, right? If, if they're limited by their own thoughts, right? We're, we're, we're forcing them to stay in that little bubble, but we're, we're forcing them outside of that bubble, giving them the opportunity to think more creatively and to engage and to, and, and to have to address those questions. Right. And that's, that's why silence is also important mm-hmm. because it makes the student think about it. Whereas if they're just blabbing off to their classmate, they're not thinking about it. 
right? And, and education really has to be taken in at that individual level. Um, and they can't just rely on what their classmates going to tell them. Yeah. And, and this whole idea of, of order is opposed to creativity. This, this, right. this is a modern educational heresy. Mm-hmm. It's just not even true. Uh, go, go talk to a painter, a, a really good painter. Okay. They learn techniques. Mm-hmm. Okay. My, my, my daughter-in-law is a really good painter and she's now teaching it to our, to our grandchildren and she's teaching them certain set techniques that you learn and, and, and you use those, you, you, you do that and you go, you know, Picasso, you know, I mean, you all the abstract art, which looks kind of random and everything. Uh, no, um, Picasso, even to make that, you know, artistic innovation, which looks so creative. Okay. He went into the Louvre and he copied the masters precisely using the techniques that he had learned as an art student. You, the, the great, the great, uh, the great painters were all taught in schools uh, in very objective techniques to do what they do. And, and so this idea that, that, that uh, order is somehow opposed to creativity is just nonsense. Yeah. And I, th- I think that that point is really important, especially in the modern educational movement, because y- you would hear the accusation that what secular or progressive schools are trying to do is prepare students for jobs. And I was just talking to a friend just recently who was making that same exact point mm-hmm. about his coding job, that why he loves it is because it's a combination of, of technique and artistry. Mm-hmm. And it's, that's mm-hmm. the fulfilling work is doing something with high level technique and high level of artistry. So we've talked about a couple of ideas in traditional education. You guys have thrown them out. Teacher at the front, desk is for, I kind of want to just name a few of these. And want you to explain to me why they, what's the importance of them, what they look like. And, you know, like Paul mentioned briefly about the teacher being at the front, expound a little bit upon some of these things. And I'll, I'll just say some of the things that you have said so far and you can expound. So one of the things that you all talked about was desks facing forward. What's the point of that in a classroom? Why is it important? Why can't students sit outside or sit in circles at tables or in beanbags? Well, I'll just say, because what you want them to do is learn from somebody who knows more than they do. Okay. That's the teacher. Okay. You can't learn as well from the teacher if you're faced the other direction. Okay. It just doesn't happen very well. So the, the, the assumption behind that is there's a teacher up there. The student is supposed to learn from them and how you are physically pointed uh, can either uh, contribute or detract from that. And sort of a tangential point, it's also distraction, right? I mean, it also uh, removes distractions because mm-hmm. you're not looking outside at the, at the, at the, you know, the leaves swaying in the breeze or the, which are beautiful. They're beautiful. Right. Um, but you're, you're, you're focused on that, which you're being presented with. And there may be a part of your, your instruction where you're outside collecting leaves, you Mm -hmm. know I mean? In a science class or something. Mm -hmm. But also it's a matter of respect Mm -hmm. to a lot of this. Mm -hmm. The traditional classroom is a matter of teaching children respect respect for each other, not talking over each other, respect for the teacher, respect for the job. This is their job is to learn now. And so that's all part of all of this desk facing the front and the teacher up front. And, you know, this is character development. Yeah. And, and, and the, the impulse now is to try to detract from the authority of the teacher, which is why they would much rather see you in your classroom walking around to the, the desks while they've got their uh, Chromebooks and you're no longer the center of attention anymore. The technology is the center of attention and the teacher has been sidelined. That's what they want. And that's not a good thing. And honestly, as a teacher, 
it um, it would be nice sometimes not to be at the center. And, I mean, you know, it's exhausting to be a teacher in a traditional classroom because you are on all the time because you are the center. You are guiding everything. But if they all did have Chromebooks and all you had to do was just kind of walk around and make sure they were on the page they were supposed to be mm-hmm. on, I mean, it would be a lot easier. And then go cash your paycheck. Yes. <laughs> what about unclu- uncluttered classrooms? What's the significance of that? Beauty and order. Well, I was going to keep going, like beating the same drum, lack of distraction, Mm -hmm. right? Um, You you go into some of these classrooms and you literally cannot focus on anything because there's so much, every square inch is covered. And, and I mean, I, I, once you get used to an uncluttered classroom with, with kind of, it's, it's kind of sparse, you walk in and it's, it's, it's almost like the room's closing in on you Hmm. because there's just so much and all of it's good stuff, right? What's a thesis statement? You know, what, how many, like how a paragraph should be formed, you know, uh, certain grammar mistakes to watch out for, like, those are all great things, but they don't need to be, you know, I don't need to be staring at those when I'm trying to learn history. Sure. Yeah, and you need to be able to say as a teacher, at, with every little thing that's up on your wall, how does this contribute to what I'm trying to teach them in this class? If you yeah. can give that a coherent answer, then it's fine. Yeah. If not, then not. You know, and those 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 old pulled down geography maps. Yeah, those were wonderful because you could pull you them could down pull when them you down need them, put them, up. put them right back <laughs> up. And I've seen teachers brilliantly put their um, their Latin uh, wall mat wall charts Online. on there because then, okay, we've learned a new declension. We pull it down, we recite it while we're looking at it. We put it up, we recite it when we don't look at it. We've got it memorized. It's beautiful. <laughs> what about um, kind of an emphasis on less technology in the classroom? Is that just because we love you know, pain in the process and we just want to do things a harder way or what's, what's the importance? Oh, let's of- let the director of MPOA take that <laughs> one. <laughs> um, well, in a brick and mortar and homeschool context, um, no, it's, it, honestly, I think it makes it easier not having it in the classroom. Mm. Um, I, you know, I, I saw the struggles, you know, my wife and I had a couple of foster children last school year and, you know, it was a one-to-one school. She had a Chromebook and I just saw the struggle, not only like I, I heard about it when she came home from trying to do work in the classroom. I saw it when she was supposed to be doing distance learning, which was a joke. Um, you know, like kids, those things are meant they're designed to be distracting. And then as an afterthought, we thought, well, maybe this would be good in schools. You know, they're meant to take your entire attention away. And so if the teacher's trying to actually teach and there's a device in front of them, they won't be listening to the teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there, there, there are some phenomenal things. Teacher Tanya mentioned the Promethean board. That's a phenomenal teaching tool while still letting the teacher teach. Yeah. Um, but, and, and there are some like that, you know, that the old overhead projectors are great. You know, uh, we still like them, <laughs> right? Uh, they're, they're a low technology thing, but they're not designed. They're meant to be an aid to the teacher, not a replacement for the teacher. And I think that's important, right? And that's why in MPOA, we're, we're doing live classes with, with a teacher because the teacher is the one teaching. Sure. You know, it's. Yeah. We want to, we want to outsource intelligence and we want to outsource knowledge to technology. And we need to remember what is the goal of education to develop this thing right Mm -hmm. here. Not not to figure out how much of what is up here we can get on a, on a, a a hard drive, 
All right. Um, yeah. So I, I, I wrote an uh, article a few years ago called uh, what to do with that $5,000 technology grant you just got. And it was to buy a Promethean board because there, it just, it just, it's not that it's technology. It's what that particular technology does. And that particular technology is helpful, but iPads, forget about it. I mean, the, 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 the science on this is really damning. I mean, they, they, it's not good on the effectiveness of computers you know, like laptops in the, in the classroom. Now, as the head of MPOA, I have to stop you there, Martin, and well, say our teachers, about- our teachers do use iPads, but yeah. in effect, they're using it the same way they would use a Promethean board. Well, your yeah, teachers right. so because are, because you're right. but not right. the but students. Not the students. Right. That's, That's right. right. That's right. So, That's Paul, we think you have a great school. <laughs> I was just trying to throw you so under the bus. about it. We like it. But you're not going to get the cover of the Classical Teacher magazine, is he? Oh, come on. No computers on the cover. Well, just ha- have a child, a smiling child with a big old text that says Online Academy. Well, it, it settles. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you guys for this conversation. It was a lot of fun, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Classical Etc. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like this episode, consider leaving us a positive review and sharing it with a friend. A huge thank you to the Memoria Press Podcast Network for hosting our show. Be sure to check out all the great podcasts there. As always, I'm Shane Saxon. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Memoria Press Podcast Network, providing a classical Christian perspective on the world of education. To learn more about Memoria Press, visit memoriapress.com. To connect with us, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.